Let's pray together, shall we? Father, tonight we just praise you because of the days in which we live. Father, we just humble ourselves tonight and we just know that you are the God who has done magnificent exploits. And Father, we're so thrilled to be able to come and talk about them and study them. Father, it gives us such joy and we just want to thank you for your word tonight. We want to thank you because you're the Lord of history. We thank you because you're the Lord of eternity. We thank you because you're our Lord and you will be forever and forever. Oh, Father, tonight as we study these things, may, Father, the peace of Jesus just enter into our hearts and may we know that no matter what is happening in the world today, there is the God who was the God of Daniel still reigning in the heavenlies and upon the earth. Father, we thank you so much that it is your Holy Spirit who restrains in this world. And we know that the evil may come against this planet, but Father, we know that Jesus is the victor. He is the great and mighty conqueror who has done wonderful things, even to us and in our country and in this world. And Father, it is to him that we commit ourselves, knowing that he is faithful and true and trustworthy. Oh, Father, tonight just take our thoughts, take our words, Father. Father, we just give them to you and we ask that they may be the words of the Holy Spirit even tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're on prophecy and you remember that so far we've been dealing with prophecy as related to specific geographical areas. We've dealt with Jerusalem and two major prophecies connected with Jerusalem. We've also dealt with Tyre, and we're in the middle of Babylon at the moment. Now, last time I left you in a mouth-watering sword of Damocles position. Do you remember that we had seen the magnificence that was Babylon the Great? These huge walls built by Nebuchadnezzar, 300 feet in height, over 300 feet in height, We'd seen the double wall system and the moat right the way around the, the, the city, a moat which stretched for 56 miles all the way around. We saw the gates, we saw the watchtowers, we saw the magnificence of the building that was in, the buildings that were inside. And do you remember we saw the river Euphrates lazily making its way right through the city centre? Do you remember that? And we had this uh, amazing device of the leaved gates just under the walls. These gates, which were on a hinge system, and yet which were kept tightly closed by the force of the river flowing against them. And I suppose last time I did something rather unfair, I left you dangling. Um, Having seen that Babylon was uh, counted to be impenetrable, counted to be a city that no army was capable of taking, And yet we saw that the word of God declared that in one evening, not only did the king of the Babylonians die, but the whole city was given into the hands of Cyrus, the great king of Persia. And tonight what I want to do is I want to fill in the details of how Babylon came to fall without an arrow being fired with the Persian army walking straight into the center of the city of Babylon. I also want to talk about the the eight prophecies that I outlined last time. I could have outlined many more. And I want to show you how these have all been fulfilled in history. You remember the eight prophecies were these. Number one, that the Medes would be stirred up against Babylon. Number two, that Babylon would be overthrown. Those two, by the way, would have been considered impossible in the ancient world. Number three, that Babylon would never be inhabited again. Number four, that no nomad would ever go there. Number five, that wild animals. And do you remember the list of wild animals that we saw? We saw the jackals and the hyenas and the wild goats. Do you remember that would inhabit? And the owls that would come along and inhabit Babylon. Number six, that it would be covered with water. Number seven, that the foundation stones would not be removed. Nothing to do with the the marvelous enamel bricks that we saw last time. These are the foundation stones on which the city was built. And number eight, that it would be uh, visited, not visited often. That's number eight. Now, these are amazing claims that the Bible made before the city of Babylon fell. At a time when Babylon was still the greatest city of the, the Middle East. 
and how all of these came to be fulfilled and how Babylon fell is a story which is magnificent. Inside, you remember, they were having a party. They were beginning to enjoy themselves and were celebrating this wonderful day that had been made specially for their gods. And you remember that God had come along and he had messed up the party. He'd done it quite simply. There was Belshazzar enjoying himself, and all of a sudden, over near the candlestick, the fingers of a man's hand had appeared. Do you remember that? And had started writing the next chapter in the history of Babylon. And he'd written certain words in the, in the plaster. And the words meant that your kingdom had finally been numbered. Your days have been numbered. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And now the Parsees were at the door, the Persians, and that the kingdom was going to be given into the hands of the Persians. And there was Belshazzar shaken to the core of his being. How did it happen? Babylon fell for the first time in one evening. How did it happen? At the time that uh, Belshazzar was enjoying himself, Cyrus, Cyrus was outside the city gates. Cyrus had been born uh, to a Persian and he was half Persian, he was half Mede, and he was the great king. And at the, in these days, Cyrus was spreading all over the Middle East. He was taking kingdoms left, right, and center. He was going to dominate and conquer the whole world. And when he marched up to these magnificent walls of Babylon, he took one look at them and he said, normal warfare is never going to get through those walls. To get into the city of Babylon is going to take a different strategy altogether. So what he did was this. He split his army into three sections. A large section and two smaller sections. He put one smaller section to the north of Babylon, one smaller section to the south of Babylon, just where the river went underneath the city wall. And then he marched the rest of the army away. The Babylonians inside, who, by the way, had just lost a battle, they'd been fighting with uh, Cyrus and they'd lost, now had closed up the whole city. And they must have thought, oh, well, obviously he's given up on us. He's taken most of the army and he's marched north. Oh, fine, we'll have a good time. There's only a little army outside and they're not going to do much. So they thought they could afford to have an evening off. Actually, Cyrus was not going north to have a good time. He was not going north either to conquer more city cities. He still had his eyes on dear Babylon. And fortunately, he knew something about Babylonian history. There was a queen of Babylon called Nitocris. N-I-T-R-O-C-R-I-S. Nitocris. And Nitocris lived sometime before Cyrus had come. And Cyrus knew about this queen. Now, one of the problems that Babylon had had was this. The river which flowed through the center of it, used to keep flooding its banks. And the result was that uh, at times all the, the rich people who lived right by the side of the river Euphrates, because that was the coolest part of the city, uh, they'd suddenly find that all their carpets would be sopping wet when they got up in the morning. Or they'd find all their furniture beginning to float out through the doors. The river Euphrates had flooded and had overflown its banks into the, in, into the city of Babylon. And Nitocris was rather sick and tired of this. She was a queen. She didn't like uh, seeing her best carpets and all her peacock feather fans and all the rest ruined by the, the waters of the river Euphrates. And so she decided that what she was going to do was develop a system which would mean that the river Euphrates would never overflow its banks again. And so do you know what she did? She went to the north of the city of Babylon and there, she picked the best spot, and she brought all her men out, and she said, now I want you to dig me a lake up here. And all her men got busy with spades, and they started digging into the, into the ground. And you know, they dug a lake basin, which was 47 miles in circumference. Now that's really some lake. Nitocris decided that was the best answer. And do you know what they did with the soil that they removed? They put it all along the banks of the river Euphrates and built up the banks of the river Euphrates so that never again would the Euphrates flood Babylon. At least that was the idea. 
basically, once they had dug the lake, which was 47 miles in circumference, they decided this, that every time the Euphrates was about to flood, all they'd simply do was divert the waters into the lake, with the result that the excess water filled up the lake and the city of Babylon wouldn't be flooded again. Now, it was a clever system. Oh, by the way, she did something else which uh, helped Cyrus a great deal. When the lake was finished, she diverted the whole river Euphrates into the lake. And while it was filling up the lake, of course, it couldn't be flowing through the city of Babylon. And she said, good. And as the, the river level fell in the city of Babylon, she cleaned out all the silt, all the silt at the bottom of the river, straightened its course, and put brick lining on the bottom and the two sides. And then as soon as the lake was filled, she diverted the river again to flow through the, the city of Babylon. Now, that's what Nitocris had done. And Cyrus knew his history. So leaving Babylon, all nice and secure, at least they thought, with two small bits of the Persian army, to the, one to the north, one to the south, he marched the rest up north to look for the basin. And he searched all round for this huge lake basin that had been dug by Nitocris. And he found it. It was rather marshy, but he didn't mind that. And he said, right, all we're going to do, we're going to dig it out a bit, and then we're going to divert the whole river Euphrates. And that's exactly what they did. And he chose exactly the right evening when the party was on. And as soon as the sun began setting, he diverted the whole river Euphrates into this uh, lake basin, he then sent a messenger down and said, oh, the river is going to go down any time. Get ready down there. And he marched the rest of his army back to Babylon. By the time they got back, the river level in Babylon had fallen dramatically, with the result that these leaved gates that we saw last time were no longer being pushed hard, closed. And when they got there, all they did, one at one end, they pulled the gates open, against what was the river, which had now dried up. At the other end, they pushed them, and they came open, and they marched down the brick-lined river, basin, uh, river uh, channel, right down from north and south, until they converged in the centre of the city. And then all they did, they climbed up the brick walls, and they were already in the administra administrative parts of Babylon. And the whole of the Persian army marched in without the Babylonians realizing anything was happening at all. Do you realize, by the way, that if the Babylonians have realized it, they would have waited until the army got fully into the city, closed the two gates, and then, then fired at the troops who were down in this brick-lined river, river course. And they could have killed the whole of the Persian army. But Cyrus was a clever man. And he decided that it would be on an evening when a party was in progress. And the result was they didn't notice that this blue streak running through Babylon had actually started going down. And soon it was right down to the brick level and these Persians were simply wading through the mud into the center of the city. That evening, without a person being killed on the Persian side, they simply took over the whole of the greatest city of the Middle East. Now that is prophecy, praise God. And can you see, in that act, we immediately get certain of these things fulfilled. Number one, the Medes were stirred up, and that is correct. The Medes came along, and they were the ones who were responsible, in, in most part, for the destruction of Babylon. And it's interesting to note, you know, after Cyrus had conquered it, and he was going on to conquer other territories, um, he left it to his uncle, who was a Mede. And a man called Darius the Mede, nothing to do with Darius the Great, a man called Darius the Mede became king of Babylon, and he was a Median. Number two, Babylon would be overthrown. If you'd lay bets at that time as to which city would not be overthrown, Babylon would be the top of the list. And yet it was the easiest city to overthrow in the whole Middle East. Praise God. And God had already prophesied its downfall. What I want to do now is just to see how number three to number eight were also fulfilled. Because today we can say, yes, number three down to number eight have definitely been fulfilled. You can go to Babylon today and see the fulfillment of all of these, these particular prophecies. But how were they fulfilled? 
For example, number three, Babylon, it says, would never be inhabited again. How was that particular bit of information? Uh, how did it actually come to pass? After Cyrus took Babylon, it actually was populated for a few more years. And it passed down, but it was dwindling all the time. Once you see a major city of the ancient world had proved to be um, vulnerable to enemy attack, people didn't really like living there anymore. And so uh, gradually it declined and declined and declined. And by the time 200 years had passed, really most of the walls were in a pretty ruinous state and most of the city, the beauty had been lost. And it was 200 years after, 200 years after Cyrus, that a man called Alexander the Great marched into Babylon. He took one look at, at this enormous city of, the, of past history and he thought, well, I'll tell you what I want to do. I want to rebuild the whole thing. Now, he didn't know anything about prophecy. God had said, one, it will be overthrown. Two, that no one would ever inhabit it again. Right. Alexander thought, oh no, I think we'll make it a jolly big city again. In fact, I think we'll make it another of the great capitals. We'll restore it to its former glory. But he said, not yet, I haven't conquered the world yet. So he stayed there six weeks and made the plan. And on he marched then into Parthia, up to Bactria, and conquered all of those. And finally, after he'd done that, he thought, I'm going back to Babylon. He went back to Babylon, set up his headquarters, and thought, now is the time to rebuild Babylon. The Word of God said that Babylon would never be inhabited as a major capital city ever, ever, ever again. Alexander said, well, who is the king of kings around here? Well, unfortunately for him, he wasn't the king of kings. Our God was the king of all kings. And our God said it was the end of Babylon. So Alexander went down into Babylon, started developing his plans. Do you know what happened? He caught a fever one evening. And at the age of 32 years and eight months, Alexander the Great died in the city of Babylon. He died right in the middle of the city. Once he'd gone, uh, the people who came after him took one look at Babylon and said, we are definitely not rebuilding this particular city again. Definitely. And they said to rebuild this city will be an enormous task. So we won't bother, we'll call it quits at Babylon, we're heading 40 miles north on the river, Euphra uh, river Tigris, we're going to have a brand new city. And that's what they did. And the whole population packed up their things and they marched out of Babylon and went 40 miles to the north. And from that time to the time of Christ, no one lived in Babylon at all. And indeed we know that, that uh, by the time that Jesus came, it was nothing but sand dunes covering the whole area. And from that time to this, Babylon has never been inhabited again. Number three is fulfilled. All right? Do you know that the Romans went there in AD 116 and they, they found nothing but piles of dust. They were looking for this, the remains of the city. They couldn't see anything. All they could see was dust everywhere. That, everywhere they looked, on every side. And they couldn't find it. And they talked about, I think one of the Roman general at the time who visited this place said, but we couldn't find anything but desert there. It was terrible. Let's go, by the way, now to number six. What happened to, in number six was this. The river Euphrates soon filled up its course in Babylon. And once it had filled up its course, it overflooded the banks and started depositing silt all the way over. And do you know today... Uh, much of the city of Babylon has not been excavated simply because the river uh, has still um, produced swamp over part of the city. And as they dig down, they dig a trench and it fills up with water as soon as they try it. In other words, part of Babylon is still covered with the water from the river Euphrates. So number six is fulfilled. Wild animals to inhabit, inhabit it, that's all, that's all that they have found actually dwelling. Uh, in the particular area. And the Germans, who were the people who went and started digging around the area, they give lists of animals. And do you know which animals keep appearing? The jackals, the hyenas, the wild goats, and the owls, as we saw last time. That is fulfilled. Number seven 
is fulfilled here, foundation stones not removed. When the people decided to build the brand new city 40 miles to the north, they thought it's too expensive to start knocking down Babylon and start digging up the foundation stones. We're not going to bother. We're going to start again with brand new foundation stones. And although bricks from Babylon are found in most museums, major museums around the world, not one foundation stone has been removed from the site of Babylon. They are still there. Number seven is correct. All right? The Germans, when they dug up Babylon, <clears throat> do you know, to get down to the level of the city, they had to remove one million cubic feet of rubble just to get down to the level of the city. And uh, th they said that instead of the normal uh, three to six meters of silt covering over a city. Over Babylon, there was 12 to 24 meters of silt on that city. So utter was the destruction. We have only two prophecies left. Number four, no nomad will go there. And number eight, it would not be visited often. Now the nomads and the Bedouins, they go anywhere that they choose, except places where it's bad luck to visit. And there is a tremendous superstition which still holds today about Babylon. And that is that any person who visits it will either die soon or will know terrible uh, luck, uh, to use their terms, luck as far as their family is concerned. The result is that no nomads will visit Babylon. That's number four. And by the way, these are prophesied 2,500 years ago, and they're still fulfilled in our day. Number eight, it would not be visited often. Do you know today you can take travel buses and uh, travel tours to most of the ancient sites? Petra, for example, is a major one today. Samaria is a major uh, 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 part of the itinerary of people visiting the Middle East. Even trips to Nineveh. But a trip to Babylon? No, no. There is no trip to Babylon. You have to arrange your own trip if you want to actually go there. So number eight is now fulfilled. Now, that is remarkable. 2,500 years ago, these things were prophesied, and they came to pass, just as the Bible said. Oh, that we had time to, do with, to deal with more geographical locations. Do you know I've given you three? That's all. We could have talked about Edom. We could have talked about Moab. We could have talked about Gaza. We could have talked about Memphis. We could have talked about Thebes. We could have talked about uh, Chorazin. We could have talked about Bethsaida. We could have talked about Samaria. So many places. All of those places have passages in the Bible which are prophetic and which have come to pass. And we have no time to deal with them. Any one of those, by the way, is an excellent subject for a Bible study by yourself. All right. Now, so far then, we've dealt with geographical locations in proof of prophecy. What I'm going to do now is this. We're going to turn from geographical locations, and we're going to start dealing with prophecies that deal with the course of history. And, of course, that takes us to the book of Daniel. Daniel is an amazing book. It is the prophetic book par excellence. There is no book like Daniel. For Daniel gives detailed and accurate uh, prophecies related to world history which have come to pass. Do you remember that I said that, uh, I think it was in talk one or was it talk two of this uh, present series, that uh, there have been more attacks against the book of Daniel than any other book in the Bible. More attacks on the, the book of Daniel. The reason is just that that it is a book which proves that our God is the God of prophecy. The attacks are amazing attacks. And so, before we get on to Daniel uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8, which we'll be dealing with next time, I'm going to talk about the dating of the book of Daniel. All right? And this will be by way of introduction to next week's talk. The dating of Daniel. Bible critics have come to Daniel and have centered their attack on it. Their sights have been on this particular book all the time. Do you remember the man, let's refresh our memories, the man Porphyry? Do you remember him? Who, he was a, a raving anti-Christian. And in the third century AD, 
He wrote 15 volumes called Against the Christians. He was furiously anti-Christian. Furiously anti-Christian. 15 volumes. Oh dear, I'd like to know how many Christians today could write 15 volumes in response to that and actually prove him wrong in every point. And do you know what he says? Daniel, of course, is attacked. And he says, oh, Daniel, he says, oh yes, Daniel. Do you know, he says, that Daniel lied about the date of the book? That's what he actually says. You see, Daniel says this, that the book was written and that Daniel lived in the 6th century B.C. And Daniel then says that the book is written in the 6th century B.C. and it prophesies world history right up to the century before Christ. In other words, it gives you 500 years of world history. Papyri came along and he said, oh, that's rubbish. No book could ever do that. What, the God of prophecy? Nonsense. I don't believe in him. He says, no, no, Daniel lied about the dating of the book. He says, actually, Daniel was a Jew, not living in Babylon at all, even though he says he was. He lived in Palestine, you know, and not in the 6th century BC. No, 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 don't be so stupid. This is what he says. He lived probably about 165 uh, BC. Now, this is absolutely crucial. Because he says this, that instead of Daniel prophesying world history, all Daniel was doing was this. He was sitting in Palestine in 165 BC, and he was looking back at what had already happened. And all he did, he just wrote the history that he knew had happened as if he was writing it before it happened. And Porphyry says, oh, it's absolute rubbish. What Daniel writing in 6th century BC? Never, he says. Now, When you meet a man who starts attacking a book like that, could I just say one thing to you? Don't get on the defensive immediately. Don't do it. Start asking him for more information. You see, if a man says to you, oh no, Daniel wasn't written in the 6th century BC, say, oh, uh, why not? Don't immediately start saying, well, you're wrong, you know. Oh, it was definitely... No, no. Just ask him for more information. After all, you see, if you go along to someone and say, oh, the Bible, you know, hasn't got a mistake from beginning to end in it, what do they say? They say, really? How do you come to that conclusion? They ask you for more information. So you, when you meet a man who attacks the dating of Daniel, you simply say to him, "Um, how do you come to that conclusion then, eh? Come on, show me. you'll find that most people simply say, oh, well, it can't have been. Well, I'm afraid that isn't much argument as far as we're concerned. No, no. He's got to give you facts. So you fill in a few facts for a start. Let's turn to the book of Daniel, shall we? And chapter 1, and let's see what Daniel says about its own dating. All right, so I begin Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and chapter 1. And let's talk about the dating of Daniel. Fortunately for us, all the dates given in the book of Daniel are approximately between 612 BC and uh, 500, sorry, and 20 BC. I say fortunately for us because that period of time is called the period of accepted chronology. In other words, most chronologers agree with the dates, even us. Even we agree with the dates within those two periods, 612 BC and 520 BC. There may be a difference of a year either way, but most people accept those dates. By the way, there's one man who does not, and that's Mr. Dake, who's written a Dake's Annotated Bible. And you must be very careful when you deal with his dates. He puts them 100 years later than everyone else and doesn't explain why he does it. All right? However, most people, non-Christians and Christians alike, accept the dates within those two, two dates, 612 BC to 520. Now let's have a look. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. Here is the dating of, what, of the events described in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. The date, 606 B.C. Some people would say 607, some 605, but there's never more than about a a year's difference between them. All right, so in your Bibles, 606 is the date. Then go to verse 21. And here's Daniel writing about himself. 
And Daniel continued even into the first year of King Cyrus. The date of the first year of King Cyrus, who was the Persian, of course, is 539 BC. So within the first chapter, then you've got a description of events occurring in 606, and it just ends with Daniel in 539 BC. Some people say 538. We're not quibbling over one year. All right, let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. That simply means he had a nightmare. The year in which he had a nightmare? 604 BC. 604 BC. Some people may say 605. It doesn't matter. A year either way. 604. All right, let's, uh, let's take just a few more. Turn to Daniel 7. Because we'll be looking at Daniel 7, and it's important that we see the year. Now, these are the years that Daniel claims. Why should there be doubt over, over this? That's the question. Why should they attack it? Surely the book is its own best representation, unless they can bring forward other facts, that is. Well, we'll have a look at that in a moment. Look at this, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. The first year of King Belshazzar? 553 BC. So we've got dating coming through. All right, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Well, if the first year is 553, the third year is 551. So 551 BC. A year either way, but mark it in your Bibles. Daniel chapter 10. Let's have a look at Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Third year of Cyrus takes us to 537 BC. Now there's the dating given in the book of Daniel. Fine. Now it may be that you will come upon upon someone and you say, give us a few more facts. And he says, certainly. Right? Here's Mr. Know-all. He knows it all. And he'll start giving you a few facts. So I'm going to tell you this. There are certain arguments that may be quoted at you. Fortunately for us, Bible believers have the answers to them all. And I'm going to outline to you the arguments that they will put in support of a date of 165 BC, right, for Daniel. Now remember, uh, in the 6th century, we've got Babylon... After Babylon, you've got Persia. After Persia, you've got Greece. Right? Then you've got Rome, of course. That's the order of the kingdoms going through. We say that Daniel wrote at the time of Babylon. They say he wrote, no, no, at the time of the Romans. That's what they say. Now, there's a world of difference. Their arguments, if there are any arguments, are based on the languages of the book of Daniel. All right? So their major attack on the book of Daniel is over the languages found in that particular book. Now, the book of Daniel actually is written in two major languages, but it contains four languages. So let's just list them. First of all, obviously, Hebrew. So it's got passages of Hebrew. Secondly, you've got a whole section, which is what we call in Aramaic. The section, actually, I hope most of you know this, is between Daniel uh, 2, verse um, 4, that's right, uh, Daniel 2, 4b, as I'm going to call it. It's the second half, in other words, of Daniel 2, 4, right through to Daniel 7, 28. All of that section there is in Aramaic, all right? Number three, there are also some Persian words... And number four, there are also a few Greek words, actually in the text. Aha! Now then, the Bible critic comes along and says, well, how is that possible, he says. How is this possible? We can all understand the Hebrew, he says, but what about the others? 
And the man most often quoted is a man called Driver, D-R-I-V-E-R, who was writing in 1890. And you know, they haven't moved on since 1890, these critics. And he says, now hold on, he says. Do you know, here is your Bible critic, do you know that Aramaic, the type of Aramaic used in Daniel, was not in use until 100 years after Daniel claims that he wrote the book? Mm -hmm. If that's true, by the way, we're wrong, aren't we? Obviously, we're wrong, because Daniel couldn't have written that. Aha! So he says, well, there you are. You've got a problem immediately. And we have got a problem immediately. If that's right, we sure have a problem. Number three. And then he says, but uh, he, was, he was living in the Babylonian Empire. How come he uses some Persian words then? And worst of all, number four. What about these Greek words? He says, you see, Alexander didn't live till oh, 200 years after Daniel was supposed to have written that book. How come there are some Greek words then found in the book of Daniel? How is it? Well, we've got to answer those, those problems because they're very important questions. <laughs> the worst thing is, that, or the best thing is, as far as we're concerned, it's ever so easy to answer them because archaeology has done all the work for us. Thank you very much. It's wonderful. Now, Hebrew, first of all, we have no problem over Hebrew. Right? Daniel was a Jew, and whether he was living in the 6th century or 165 BC, he will, could have written in Hebrew. That's easy. What about this Aramaic? Now, in 1890, it was true that they thought that Aramaic hadn't been in use until 100 years after Daniel. But at the turn of the century, guess what they found? They found some bits of paper called papyri written in Aramaic and dating from a hundred years before Daniel. In other words, the type of Aramaic, which is called Western Aramaic, by the way, that Daniel 2.4 to Daniel 7.28 was written in, was around a hundred years, at least before Daniel wrote. And quite recently, papyri, so many papyri have been found in Western Aramaic, it is now known that it was the usual language to speak in, in the Middle East at the time of Daniel. That is now a proven fact. And if they bring up this old, old story about Western Aramaic being too late a language, they haven't read any papers on linguistics probably for the last 60 or 70 years. So that's wrong anyway. It's old hat. It's ridiculous. Fine. Well, there's no problem as far as we're concerned there. In fact, Western Aramaic was the usual language used in all the court circles. And Daniel moved and had his being in court circles. Of course he would have used Aramaic. Number three, the Persian words give us no problem either. Because he actually says he lived at the time of Cyrus the Persian. So we don't even have to answer that. Of course he would have used certain Persian words. Ah, but here's the one that they really go for. What about these Greek words? You see, in Daniel chapter 3... There are certain instruments named. Nebuchadnezzar set up a big statue to himself. He said, you've got to fall down and worship every time you hear these instruments, these instruments, these instruments, these instruments, and those instruments. That's what he said. And three of them have Greek names. Mm -hmm. So, how on earth were they called by Greek names? Well, listen. Greek was spoken long before Alexander the Great came on the scene, you know. And they have again, here is more linguistic research, they have found papyri dating from the 7th century BC, that's 200 years before Daniel, or at least 100 years before Daniel, actually written in Greek. Because the Greeks, you see, spread out and they had little communities, rather like the Jews today, little communities all over the Mediterranean world. And they were super f uh, fighters. They liked a good battle, the Greeks did, so what they used to do, they used to form bands of mercenaries. And they used to go to, say, the Assyrians. And they went up to uh, certain Assyrian kings. Ezer Haddon, I think, was one. And they said, excuse me, do you want some fighters? Here we are. And there they were, speaking Greek. And that's the Assyrian Empire we're talking about. And do you know that under Nebuchadnezzar, there was a whole regiment of Greek soldiers? Well, there we are. You see, in other words, these languages were around at the time that Daniel wrote. And it's so fascinating, this, because on the little island called Elephantine, Elephantine, people think that it's called Elephantine because it's in the shape of an elephant. That is not true, by the way. Actually, it's the word for ivory. And it's a, an island where lots and lots of ivory is found. Do you know, on that island, they have found Greek manuscripts naming the instruments 
that Daniel actually names in his book, dating from before the book of Daniel. I think that's wonderful. He doesn't use one word that is modern, i.e. after 300 BC. He uses all words that we have examples of from before his own time. Now, I think that's marvellous. Therefore, on a linguistic basis anyway, they're totally wrong. And this is the main thrust of their argument. This is it. It hasn't changed since 1890. They've had no new thoughts over the dating of the book of Daniel. All right, what do we put up in opposition? There are three major things that we put up in opposition, which certainly show me that Daniel was written exactly when he said it was actually written. And we've got to go through these things so that you're ready. The last one is absolutely crucial and may answer a Bible problem that some of you have had. Number one, if Daniel was written by a Jew in 165 BC, how on earth did he know so much about Babylonian history? Do you know, there are facts given in the book of Daniel that no one knew until we, in our modern civilization, discovered them. They'd forgotten all about the details of Babylonian history. For example, you know, this man Belshazzar that we saw. Belshazzar. It's only um, a few years ago that he was proved to really have existed. People used to laugh at the Bible. They used to say, amazing, Daniel 5 talks about this king Belshazzar. We've never heard of him. That's what they said. Even the apostate Jews used to say, Belshazzar, no such man. But Daniel says, oh yes, such a man existed. And it's only now that we can say, yes, such a man definitely did exist. If Daniel were a Jew living in 165 BC, how on earth did he know that Belshazzar existed? No one else knew at that time. How could he have known it? Also, how could he have known details? Do you remember the detail we saw last time? Where, it, where Belshazzar says, listen, Daniel, if you'll do this, I'll make you third in the kingdom. Do you remember that? And do you remember that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was on holiday at the health resort at Timur in Arabia? Do you remember that? Right? On one of these diets and, and beautiful peanut farms or whatever they're called. And he was having a fine time. That's only recently been discovered. But it's all in Daniel. If Daniel was written in 165 BC, how on earth did this Jew get hold of the information? It would have been totally impossible. And I just give you Nabonidus and Belshazzar as a little example. It would have been totally impossible for him to have known. There's only one explanation that Daniel was written when he says, right? That actually he was an eyewitness of these events and that was all uh, that, that he could do. Write it down as he saw it. The second argument concerns the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, these Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They were written about the time of Christ, say a hundred years before the time of Christ. And you know there are major books of the Bible found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these were the religious books of the Jews. Uh-huh. The religious books of the Jews. Uh, certain complete books were found. Let me um, just write out the names of some of the books that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Isaiah was found, of course, but that's not the book I, that concerns us. There are four books that were found in detail. Daniel was one of them. Psalms was another. Ecclesiastes was another. And Chronicles was another. And to the people living in 100 BC... These books were their religious manuscripts. Now, there's one thing that's important here. You see, the Jews would not accept a modern book as their manuscripts. It would have to have been a book written centuries before they lived. And here are books counted as religious manuscripts by the Jews living in 100 BC <coughs> that must, therefore, have been written hundreds of years before... Uh, they were, must have been count, uh, written actually down on, on papyri hundreds of years before these Jews, living at the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually came to read them. And do you know the Bible critics who criticized Daniel? When this was discovered, they immediately accepted Psalms as an ancient book. They immediately accepted Ecclesiastes as an ancient book and Chronicles. But Daniel, not on your life. 
Definitely not. No reason given. Do you know what the reason is? The reason is this. Daniel contains prophecy. And it's all right looking at manuscripts and talking about linguistics, but you see, it's the encounter with the living God that counts. Hallelujah. That's right. They wouldn't accept that. So Daniel, oh no, 165 B.C., actually meaning that a book that had been written 65 years before was accepted as a religious manuscript by the Jews. It is totally impossible. But I think it's the third proof that to me is the most conclusive, number three. The third proof is a wonderful one, and it is one of these contradictions in the Bible, or one of the so-called contradictions in the Bible. Do you know there is a difference in, in Jer- between Jeremiah and Daniel? Do you know that? A little difference. Could you just turn with me, please, to Jeremiah... Uh, first of all, to Daniel 1.1. We've seen this already. Daniel 1.1. And if ever this comes up, you now will have the answer after today. Daniel 1.1. In the third year, it says, of King Jehoiakim, the third year of King Jehoiakim, what happened? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it in the third year. Well, it sounds okay, doesn't it? Now have a look at this little contradiction that you've got. Turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 25. Back in your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1. Here's Jeremiah busy warning the Jews, and notice the date of it. Verse 1, Jeremiah 25, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now you've got a fourth year of Jehoiakim. So, in other words, a year later. Except that when you then read this passage, Jeremiah is actually saying to the people, in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, now listen, you folk, unless you repent, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. That's what he says. He says, and it's this year he's coming as well. Now, Daniel says it was in the third year of King Jehoiakim that Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. Yet apparently here is a year later, and Jeremiah's preaching and saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar will come, you know, unless you repent. Now, that's a total contradiction. Can you see? There's no way, is there, that you can ever get round that. Oh dear, oh dear. One says Nebuchadnezzar came in the third year of King Jehoiakim. The other says that Nebuchadnezzar came up in the fourth year. Now, isn't that a problem? Well, well, here's one of your... Well, it just proves, doesn't it, that the Bible can't be trusted. Do you know it doesn't? It proves exactly the opposite. You see, now let's get this right. Jeremiah was a Jew who was educated among the Jews. And do you know how they used to count their king years? It was easy. When the king came to the throne, the first year was the first year. The second year was the second year. The third year was the third year. The fourth year was the fourth year. Easy. One, two, three, four. Daniel, however, was taken as a young man into Babylon and was trained in the Babylonian ways. And do you know they didn't used to count their years like that? (laughs) and we've only just discovered this little snippet of information but Dr. Thiel who is the the great uh, chronologist of the Hebrews he's the chap to read he's done a book called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings you know, marvellous and do you know what the, the Babylonians did? the year that the man came to the throne was called the accession year accession year the next year was the first year The next year was the second, and then next was the third. That's it. Here's Daniel, the accession year, then one, two, three. Here's Jeremiah, no accession year, just one, two, three, four. It's the same year. Lovely, lovely. Except that if Daniel was a Jew living in 165 BC in Palestine, how on earth did he know how the Babylonians counted their years? How on earth did he know it? couldn't possibly have known that that's how the Jews count their year, the Babylonians counted their years. Do you see? It's a contradiction here that proves the fact that Daniel was written exactly when he said it was written in the 6th century BC. And there is no other way around that. 
The Jews had forgotten how the Babylonians had counted their king years. It's been left to modern scholarship to find it out. And yet in this book, in Daniel, we find it exactly portrayed as it was and as it existed. Do you see? There's another thing as well. Daniel, had he written it in 165 BC, wouldn't have dared to have contradicted a date found in Jeremiah. He wouldn't have dared to do it. All that means is that when we talk about Daniel next, next uh, week or next time, we know this, that he wrote it in the 6th century BC, as he said. And the things that are prophecy are prophecy, very definitely. And it tells us one other thing, and let me end on this tonight. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I'm, I'm not going to read the first verse because I don't want to get involved with Darius the Mede at this particular point. But verse 2, here's Daniel. The year is 537 BC. And look what he says. In the first year of his reign, Daniel 9, 2, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Here is Daniel in 5.3.7, and he is reading the book of the prophet Jeremiah and chapter 29. What does that tell us? That Jeremiah was written before Daniel was written. It's as easy as that. Here's Daniel studying the book of Jeremiah. Now, it's a watertight argument as far as I'm concerned. And do you notice one other thing? The 70 years are literal. It's not just a nice general period, like they say the thousand years of Revelation 20 years, or any period. It's exactly 70 years. And he counts up the number of years, and he finds it's coming to an end. And he says, hey folks, it's next year that God is going to release us from Babylon, just as Jeremiah prophesied. Praise God. The God of prophecy is the God who is trustworthy in history. He knows what is going to happen. And when we come on to study the future things in the next course, I'm going to tell you some of the things that are going to happen on the face of this planet Earth. Things, some of which we will see before our very eyes, and some of which we will take part in ourselves. The future is wonderful for the Christian, praise God, even as it's been wonderful for believers in the past. Next time, the... Uh, beasts of Daniel. God bless you.